Well, good morning again. Um, it's a, a joy to be able to uh, be able to open God's Word with you this morning. Um, please keep Pastor Paul and Don in your uh, prayers this morning uh, as they are on vacation, getting some much-needed rest and relaxation and time together with their family. Um, just be in, in prayer for them over the course of this next week. Um, also, a quick sideline, if you need anything over this next week, please don't call Pastor Paul because he's on vacation. So myself, Pastor Wes, any of the elders are here, um, and we'd love to help you out with anything that you may need or anything that comes up, um, just because we want to give him time to be able to get away and, and rest and recharge. So um, open in your Bibles with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14, we're going to kind of camp out there this morning, um, but we're going to do something a little bit different. You know, one of the great uh, devices that's used in literature or film or any of these things is the idea of, of foreshadowing. Um, there might be no more subtle yet powerful foreshadowing than in one of the greatest um, theatrical reveals of all time uh, in the classic film, The Empire Strikes Back, with the often quoted line, Luke... I am your father. And if you were watching that when it first came out, there was a, I don't know, I wasn't born, but if you were watching that when it first came out, I'm sure there was an audible gasp in the theater because of how big of a reveal this was. Darth Vader, the ultimate bad guy, is the father of Luke Skywalker, the ultimate good guy in the Star Wars universe, of course. But, had you known German, you would know that the title Darth Vader literally means Dark Father. Foreshadowing throughout the series. And we see this in a million other ways, in, in pop culture, in movies, in, in literature, of this idea of foreshadowing things that are to come. And, and that's really what they are, is it provides a shadow. Now, if you've ever walked out on a sunny day and you've looked at your shadow on the ground, right, I could walk outside right now and I could say, yeah, that's me, right? I could see kind of my hair's out of place. I can see a, a larger bodied frame. Um, if I turn this way, I could probably see like a gut sticking out, like, right? You can say like, that is me. And if you showed like a picture of my shadow to my wife or someone who knows me, they'd probably be like, yep, yeah, that's TJ, I can tell. But with shadows, though they give us kind of a picture or they of what they represent, a picture of what they're reflecting, they don't give us all of the detail. It's a very kind of blurred and, and distorted picture, and we only see in part what the full is that it's representing. That is the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a shadow of what God is ultimately doing throughout the course of history. And so this morning as we look at Exodus chapter 14, which is where the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, and what is honestly probably considered and within the Jewish tradition considered the greatest saving act in all of the history of God's people, in all of the history of Israel in the Old Testament, everything kind of goes back to this moment when God redeems his people out of slavery in Egypt and leads them across the Red Sea. But as we look at this this morning in Exodus 14, we're also going to take a bigger step back. 
And we're going to look at how Exodus 14 and the crossing of the Red Sea and the exodus of God's people out of Egypt serves as a picture and is not only the story of a group of ancient Israelites in the desert, but is also the story of each and every one of us. Because when we, when we take a look back, what we see is that Exodus 14 is a shadow of all of redemptive history. You know, we do a really good job sometimes in churches of teaching Bible stories, but we neglect to teach the story of the Bible. See, this one story from Genesis to Revelation, one story about what God is doing to redeem his creation through his son. And so this morning, as we look at Exodus chapter 14, I want us to see our story. I want us to see how we also were in these same situations and how God now on a grand and glorious and cosmic level has redeemed his people. So the beginning section of Exodus chapter 14, kind of the, the backlog to what we're going to be diving into today, is that the people of Israel, right, the plagues have happened. Pharaoh has said, go, get out of here. And so the people have gotten up and it says a great mixed multitude uh, we think that's somewhere in the neighborhood of like two to three million people get up and leave Egypt, and they start walking out through the desert, and they're going, and then Pharaoh kind of has like a change of heart the next morning, and he's like, wow, they did a lot of stuff for us, and now we've got to do it, and I don't like that. Let's go get them and bring them back. And so Pharaoh gets his army together and his chariots and they ride off into the desert to go get the people of Israel and to bring them back into slavery and into captivity after they've sent them out. And God is telling Moses as he's leading the people, he says, keep going, keep going, keep going. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to camp at the, the edge of the Red Sea. Go and make your camp at the edge of the Red Sea. And so the people are like, okay. But then here's what happens. They go and they make their camp at the edge of the Red Sea. And then pretty soon they start seeing a big dust cloud off in the distance. That's weird. There's some kind of sandstorm going on out there. But then what they notice is it keeps getting closer and closer and bigger and bigger. And then they can start to make out shapes underneath it. And they can see that it is the army of Egypt, the greatest army that the world knows at that point, riding in its full force towards them to capture or kill them. And this is where we jump in, in Exodus chapter 14, verse 10, is that Israel becomes acutely aware of the reality of the situation. Exodus 14, verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is, it not, this, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. 
And so as the people of Israel see the oncoming army of Egypt approaching them, and they see, they see the horses, and they see the chariots, and they see the mighty warriors coming at them, their immediate thought is, we are dead. They are coming, and I've I got to be honest, they're like, probably, Egyptians are probably like pretty mad at this point because of all the stuff that God had done on behalf of the Israelites to the people of Egypt. And so their first thought has got to be, they are coming to kill us. Moses, you brought us out here to be slaughtered in the desert. Like, this is the biggest, mightiest army on the face of the planet. We have no chance against them. We are like fish in the barrel. So then they say, hey, let's run. And they turn around, and it's the Red Sea. And so the reality of the situation sets in. That they can stay there, and they can be killed by the oncoming enemy who is, who is coming, they can see, and who they have no hope of standing against. Or they can jump into the waters of the Red Sea and make a swim for it, knowing that there's no way they'd get across, and they would all just drown. And so the reality of the situation for the people of Israel that they are confronted with is that they are surrounded on all sides by death. Their options are death or death. Either death at the hand of the enemy or death by struggling to do it in their own power to get away to safety. Death or death. Now church, while this is certainly was the situation that the Israelites found themselves, this is also the situation that every human post the garden has found ourselves in as well. Back in, in Genesis 3, the reality of our situation becomes really clear. Genesis 3, chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, says that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then both of their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then we see the ultimate reality that we all face. Because of what the man and the woman had done, and because of the sin that each one of us has so easily allowed ourselves to be entangled into, in verse 24 of Genesis chapter 3, God drove out the man, and at the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The Israelites were surrounded by death on every side. Humanity was surrounded by life in the very presence of the creator God who had made us. But because of our sin, because of what we have done, because we are so quick to walk away from the goodness of God and to turn to the things that we want and to gratify the desires of our flesh, there's been a barricade put between us and the God of life. And so we have two options. God tells us, that because of sin, there is death. 
So we have two options. We can either give ourselves over to it. The Israelites could have just wait and sat there and given themselves over in battle to the people of Israel or to the people of Egypt. We can sit and we can, we can dive headlong into sin and we can give ourselves over to it knowing that it is certain death that comes with it. Or we can try and jump in the water and swim away under our own power. But we know that either one of those, whether we give in to sin or whether we try and fight it in our own strength, it only leads to death and there is no way that we could ever get away from it. Death or death is the reality of the situation. But in the midst of this grim reality, there is something else. In the second part of Exodus 14, there is the, what I like to call the hope of the promise. The hope of the promise. Because as the Israelites are, are sure that they're going to die now, we can either die by drowning in our own strength, or we can die by waiting for the encroaching enemy to kill us. Moses reminds them of the hope of the promise in verse 13 of Exodus chapter 14. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, and stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you, I love this, have only to be silent. Amen. You see, before all of this had happened with the Exodus, before Moses had even gone into the court of Pharaoh and demanded that Pharaoh release the people of God from captivity, before all of the plagues and before all of that, there was a bush in a desert that was burning and there was a voice speaking out of the bush, the one who says that he is the God of creation speaking to Moses and he says, I will redeem my people from Egypt. I will do it. I will go before them. I will fight on their behalf. I have heard the cries of my people, and I will do this. See, God made a promise, and when God makes a promise, God always makes good on the promises that he makes. Amen. And so as the people now are starting to fear, and as the people are starting to understand the reality of the situation that they are in, that they have no hope on their own, Moses says, Israel, stop it, and remember the promise. Why are we here? Because God said that he would bring us here. Why are we here? Because God told us that he would deliver us. God made the promise and he intends to keep it. So Israel, all you need to do is sit back and you need to see the salvation of the Lord that he has promised to work for you and stop trying to do it on your own. For millennia, since the garden, humanity has tried to find the answer to sin on our own. And time after time after time, we fail. No matter how good our intentions are, no matter how strong our resolve is, no matter what we're thinking or how much we want to put into it, we cannot do it. Salvation is not found in morality. Salvation is not found in anything else that we could ever concoct in our human minds or put our hope in. And what I would want us to hear this morning is that though we understand and though humanity is cast into this desperate situation because of sin that we have no hope except death, there is a promise to hold on to. And that promise is what brings us 
our hope. And in the midst of what we just read in Genesis chapter 3, that promise from God becomes clear because as he is pronouncing his judgment over sin and over the man and the woman and the serpent, in Genesis 3 chapter 15, he makes a promise and he says that I will put enmity between you and the woman. Right? It's no longer the strength and the resolve of humanity fighting against the power of the evil one. It is no longer us versus the tempter, but God says, I, he, he is the one who is going to act. He will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Of course, we know what this is talking about on this side of the cross. But at the time, that was just a great hope that at somehow what Adam and Eve knew in that moment of desperation, in that moment of loss, when they realized the, the depravity and the depth of how horrible their situation was, there was this promise that somehow God was going to fix it. And Moses reminds the people of Israel, no matter how hopeless our situation looks right now, somehow God has promised to save and redeem us. And so he will. And so we continue in Exodus 14. And so we have the reality of the situation and the hope of the promise. But then finally, we see God's sovereign plan revealed. Now, we say God's sovereign plan because this is God alone who is working, right? We are out of the situation. I love what Moses says, Israel, you have nothing to do but be silent. Not even a peep, much less any action on your part. God is the one who will save. And so God's sovereign plan is revealed. In verse 15 of Exodus 14, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Where, Moses? Where, where God? Where? I can only imagine Moses being like, forward, okay. What? God says, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. I guarantee they may have thought a lot of different things about how they were going to get out of that situation. I bet none of them thought this was about to happen. Then God says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after you. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. God says, okay, I told you I was going to do it. I'm going to do it. Here's how I'm going to do it. Split the water and walk through. Who ever saw that coming? How unthinkable it would have been. Can, can you imagine being in the place of Moses and coming back to these fearful, frightened, and kind of annoying Israelites and being like, guys, don't worry. Here's the plan. We're going to split the ocean. Probably not a lot of support coming for old Moses at that point. But that's the plan. God says, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it in a way that nobody ever expected. I'm going to do it in a way that nobody ever thought possible. And that no one left to their own devices would ever dream about me doing it. This is how I'm going to fulfill the promise to redeem my people. 
And so in his grace, God reveals the way to all of humanity that he is going to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15. And it comes in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is often titled, The Suffering Servant. And Isaiah 53, 1-6 says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? Who could even believe it? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our, or surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who would have ever thought? Who would have ever dreamed that the way that God would fulfill the promise of Genesis 3 is to send his own son. The son that he has had perfect fellowship and communion and love with without end. It's not just a long time, but it was forever. We can't even comprehend forever. If you try and comprehend forever, you will go crazy. Who would have thought that God would split an ocean to save his people? Who would have thought that God would give himself to save humanity? Again, in Isaiah 53 that we just read, where is the action? It is all on the part of God. Christ was bruised. Christ was wounded. Christ was stricken and afflicted so that we could be healed. So that we could be redeemed. Church, the reality is that humanity for millennia has tried in its own power to undo the effects and the power of sin and death. But all we have to do is be silent. Because it is God who works. And it is God's sovereign plan of salvation that he has revealed on the behalf of his people. So maybe the people of Israel by now are feeling some kind of way. They're probably either like, Moses has lost it. He thinks we're going to split the ocean and walk through it. Or they're thinking, well, God just did do a bunch of crazy stuff in Egypt. Why can't he do this too? 
right? He just turned the Nile into blood. He just sent frogs and locusts, and the whole angel of death thing was pretty crazy. Maybe he can do it. But here's the part that I love. Because here's where God shows up. And so this section, we see the reality of the situation, the hope of the promise, God's sovereign plan revealed. But then what we see is God is not just standing far off and working things out, but we see the protecting intervention of God himself. The protecting intervention of God himself. In verse 19 of Exodus 14, Then the angel of the God... Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other. God literally places himself between the oncoming enemy and his people. He goes from leading to defending. And so, in the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful passages of all of Scripture, we see how Christ has done this for each and every one of us as well. We see in redemptive history the protecting intervention of God nowhere clearer than in John chapter 10 when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. You see, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, the one who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for my sheep. Um, I am a, I'm going to say self-proclaimed so that no one, none of you can make fun of me. I'm a self-proclaimed nerd and, um, I love, uh, like the fantasy genres and that kind of stuff. One of my, maybe my favorite movie trilogy, and it's also a great book series, The Lord of the Rings by Tolkien. And there's a scene in the, what would be the first movie for most folks, uh, where, the, the fellowship that's carrying the ring back to Mordor, uh, they have to take a, a cut through. They can't go around this big storm that's happening, so they have to take a cut through the mines of Moria, which was an old dwarven kingdom. And as they go through, uh, one of the little hobbits knocks some stuff down, uh, a giant well, and it makes a loud crashing noise, and all of these goblins come out and start chasing the fellowship through the mines of Moria. And so they're running, but then all of a sudden, all the goblins disappear. And you see light at the end of a tunnel. And you see what had happened was um, the fellowship in their hurry had awakened a creature called a Balrog. And the way that it's described by Tolkien is that it is a demon of fire and stone. It's pretty scary looking if you watch the movie. And this Balrog starts pursuing the fellowship and they are running and they know they are running. And as they're running, all of the party is going. And, and Gandalf, who is the, the wizard who's kind of leading the party at this point, he's out in front. But he realizes something. He realizes that no matter how hard they run, they will never outrun the Balrog who is coming to get them that they cannot defeat. And so what he does is they come to this thin bridge called the Bridge at Khazad-dûm. And as they run across the bridge, Gandalf st- stops. And he gets behind everybody and lets them run. And then he turns and he faces the Balrog head on. And he plants his staff on the 
the bridge and he had a famous line, you shall not pass. So that the people who were under his protection could escape to freedom and to safety. Church, since the garden, humanity has been chased by a far greater and more dangerous foe than a ball rock. But humanity has been chased by sin and death itself. And so knowing that there is no way that we could ever escape on our own or find our own way to salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ comes and he puts his people behind him and he goes and he lays down his life and he plants his cross on the hill of Calvary and he looks at death as he gives up his own life and he says, you shall not pass. They are mine. They are under my protection. You cannot have them. And he stands and just as Gandalf fights the Balrog on behalf of the fellowship, Christ goes to the cross and lays down his life in the fight against death itself for us. And becomes our guardian and our protector. Because while we have nothing to do but be silent, Christ gives his life to fight for his own You see, the beauty of salvation is that God is not far off from his people, but he has come near to them to guard and protect and save. I can't imagine that day on the banks of the Red Sea, the confidence that the people of Israel would have felt at this point when the very presence of God goes and guards them from the encroaching enemy. And when that happens, our next section, the way to salvation is made clear. God goes back and defends and guards the people against the oncoming enemy. Christ plants his cross so that death and sin can no longer pursue us. And the way to salvation is made clear. Verse 21 of Exodus 14. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into them, into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptians into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. the Israelites didn't know how God was going to save them from the oncoming enemy in that moment, when they woke up and there were two giant columns of water and dry land running straight through, I bet they figured it out. God had done something. God had made a way 
where there was no way. So I love that song that we sang this morning, Waymaker. Because it is God who makes a way when we can't. And God did that for the people of Israel. And where there was no way, he made a way. And so now with their options being death or death, God says, no, here is the way to life. Here is the way to salvation. Go follow this way. Follow the path that I have laid. Enter into this salvation and have and receive life again. And just as he did that for the Israelites, he's done the same for us. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is Mark chapter 15, and it's Mark's account of the crucifixion. And in Mark chapter 15, Mark writes this. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This is Christ's crucifixion. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled, and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And then, church, we come to most holy ground in verse 37 of Mark 15. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We so often overlook that last part. But friends, it is the way to life and salvation. We talked about in Genesis 3 how after mankind had fallen in the garden, God took them out of the garden and placed a barricade so that they could never again enter into his physical presence in the garden because of their sin. And they were cut off from the very source of life, which is the presence of God. And as time progresses, even after the people of God are established, when they build the tabernacle, there's a giant curtain placed as a barrier between the people and the presence. And then as we see the temple built, there's a giant curtain placed between the inner court and the holy of holies, between the people and the presence. And God's message in all of this with all of these curtains was that because of your sin, you do not have access to my presence. But when Christ, the good shepherd, lays his life down for his people, when Christ, the one who was bruised and beaten and pierced for our transgressions, the one in whom we find peace, when Christ hangs on the cross and gives his life for his people to atone for their sin, the curtain is ripped from top to bottom because there is now no longer any need for it. Because of the atoning work of Christ, the people of God can now enter into the presence of God and receive the life that is there for us. 
The way to salvation is made clear. And God says your sin has been dealt with. You no longer bear the penalty for it because Christ has paid for it. So enter boldly into my presence. And I love how the author of Hebrews instructs the church to do that, where he says, enter with confidence to the throne of grace. We now, as the redeemed people of God, because what Christ has done for us on our behalf, no longer live in fear of sin and death because we now no longer live under the reign of death, but we have been given access to the life that is found through Christ in the presence of God. The way to salvation has been made clear. But there might still be that little thing in the back of your brain. And there are some Christians who would, who would argue that this may not be the end of the story. But what I want us to see in both Exodus 14 as we come to the end of our time together, in Exodus 14 and, and in the story of, of our salvation and of our lives, is that the victory has been finalized. The victory has been finalized, right? Exodus 14, starting in verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians, as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered their chariots and their horsemen and all of the host of Pharaoh that followed him into the sea, and not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. God says, I'm not just going to create a barrier between you and the enemy so that you always have to live in fear of the fact that Pharaoh might come after you again. He says, but on your behalf, I'm going to deal with the enemy once and for all. You will never live another day of your life, Israel, worrying if Pharaoh is coming after you. And church, it is the same for us because in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, death is beaten forever and the victory on our behalf has been finalized. We don't have to live in fear of the encroaching enemy anymore. It has been rendered useless. Christ gives his life and uses death itself to defeat death. But then three days later gets up showing that death has no power anymore. That Christ is the one who has the power. And so I love what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 as he is speaking in in one of the most beautiful chapters on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and everything that it means to us. He writes, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body put on immortality. Speaking of Jesus, for when the perishable Christ as humanity puts on the imperishable coming back to life and the mortal Christ as human puts on the immortality, the risen and reigning Lord Jesus, then shall come to past the saying that is written that death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory has been finalized. And because of that, A redeemed people has been established. 
a redeemed people has been established. Thus, Exodus chapter 14, verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now, of course, this is the biblical idea of the fear of the Lord. This isn't the people being scared of God. This is the people revering God, honoring God, worshiping God. So, because of the salvation that God had worked for them, because they could look back and see how God had redeemed and saved them, they do two things, fear the Lord and believe in the Lord. They worship God and they believe in God. And church, it was for no purpose or for any singular one of us that Christ gave his life, but it was to redeem a people and to establish his people. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, but you, writing to the church, but you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous life. For once, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Receiving the merciful salvation of God is what establishes his church as his people. Because we can look back and because we can see and we can shout amen and we can be overjoyed in thinking about everything that Christ has done for us. We worship him and we believe him. One of my favorite movies of all time is the Disney classic, The Beauty and the Beast. It's a great movie maybe even better soundtrack. There's a scene in that movie where Belle runs away from the beast. She grabs a torch and she takes off into the woods and she's going to make it on her own and she's running away from the beast in his castle. Soon she gets lost on the way. And then, as that tension rises in the movie, you see glowing eyes in the woods around her. And a pack of wolves starts to encroach on her. And she swings the torch to try and get them away, but it falls out of her hand and into the snow, and she's there lost in the darkness with the encroaching pack of wolves facing certain doom. She has no hope. There's nothing she can do to save herself. But in jumps the beast. And because he had developed and because he loved her, he fights for her. 
And he goes and he swats at the wolves and he fights them away. And one of them jumps on and bites his shoulder and tears him up. And he grabs a wolf and he roars in its face, proclaiming to all of the wolves that were attacking that this girl was under his protection, that he loved her and she was his. And he bears the scars of the fight to save her. Because he loved her. And this is kind of the turning point of the whole movie because in this moment when Belle sees the love that the beast has for her, it changes her affection towards him. And while this is not a perfect analogy by any stretch, church, if you ever feel like you don't love God, look to the cross. Look to the way that he has loved you. If you ever feel like the Christian life just isn't worth it, if you ever feel like you're missing out, if you ever feel like you are getting a bad deal from Christ, gaze in awe and wonder on the ways that he has loved you. And so this is what the New Testament would encourage us to do. And would remind us that we love God. Why? Because he first loved us. Church, we, like Belle in that silly cartoon movie, are running away from the one who loves us. But when we have no hope, we left him. We wronged him. And when we have no hope, instead of letting us get what we deserve and what's coming to us, he jumps in and is wounded for us. And so we opened our time of worship with it this morning, and I'm going to close our time together with it. The song of heaven for all eternity of the redeemed people of God in Revelation chapter 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands saying in a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Because church, when we understand what Christ has done for us, there is no other response possible than to love him and to worship him and to follow him. Amen. So, When I was a youth pastor, I had youth students ask me all the time questions like, how can I deal with this? How can I deal with this? How can I deal with this? And they wanted this answer to each of these individual problems. Some, some golden passage out of scripture that's going to help them fight pornography or lust or drinking or whatever it might be. 
And while we wanted to point them to the wisdom of Scripture, and we did, the number one thing that I would answer each of those questions with is, if you are fighting in your life, draw near to Christ. And so church, that is my challenge to you this morning. We all face all different kinds of things in our life. Draw near to Christ. Gaze upon his love for you and what he has done for you. And allow that to be what sets the affection of your soul on him for all eternity.